Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, throughout his ministry, our Lord Jesus often prayed to his Father in heaven. Luke 3 says that Jesus prayed at his baptism and then the the heavens were opened. After the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus went up a mountainside to pray. And in Luke 6, before choosing the 12 apostles, it says that our Lord Jesus spent the, the entire night in prayer, talking to his Father. And even though we are told often that Christ prayed, rarely are we told the content of his prayers. But here in our text, we see something different. We get an inside look at one of Jesus' prayers to God the Father. And on display is the, is the intimate relationship between them. You can see the, the love between Christ and, and, and his Father in heaven. But this prayer also shows us something else. Before our eyes, we also see our Lord Jesus' love for his disciples and also for us, his people. The setting for our text is the last Passover before Christ's death. Jesus and his disciples have been conversing intimately for the last four chapters. It's our Lord's last pastoral message to them before he leaves them. And Jesus' prayer here, it forms the climax of that long conversation between them. See, after faithfully teaching his disciples one last time, our Lord then lovingly prays with them and for them. And there's a warmth on display that that we often don't see in the other parts of the Gospels. We see something of the relationship that has been formed between Jesus and his disciples over the last few years. Christ eagerly prays for his disciples, but it's not them alone. He also eagerly prays for believers, for his church. Christ here is is praying for us, his church here in Winnipeg in 2020. What we want to see is that Christ prays with the same love for us as he had for his disciples. So the sermon theme this morning is, Our loving Savior Jesus Christ prays for the good of his church. Let's see, first of all, our Lord prays eagerly for us. Second, our Lord prays for our unity in the present. And third, our our Lord prays for our enjoyment of his glory in the future. So, first of all, our Lord prays eagerly for us. This prayer of Christ here in John 17 is, is often referred to as Christ's high priestly prayer. In fact, I I suspect if you were to look in your Bibles, you would see that heading above this chapter. And there's a good reason for this title. Through his prayer here, Christ is interceding for his disciples and for us. And the work of intercession fits primarily with Christ's office of high priest. In the Old Testament, we read a lot about priests. The priests perform many tasks, but two of them perhaps stand out. First of all, there's the work of atonement. Atonement for the sins of the people. 
By offering sacrifices on the altar, the priests pointed people to the great sacrifice to come by which the people's sins would be paid for. And the climax of their their atonement that they gave was the Day of Atonement, as we read about it in Leviticus 16. The high priest first went through an elaborate cleansing ritual. He sanctified himself, as Jesus talks about in his prayer as well. They cleansed themselves, and then they presented the atonement blood before the Lord. And the Old Testament priests, of course, first did this for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people. And all of this pointed ahead to the the great priestly work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, as our great high priest, made the only effective atoning sacrifice. That means his blood shed on the cross once for all is the perfect sacrifice that has completely paid for all of our sins. Hebrews 10, verse 14, puts it this way. By a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is the power of Christ's sacrifice for us. There's another work of the priests that stands out. It's a work of intercession. And this, too, is important. In fact, it goes hand in hand with that work of atonement. You see, the the Old Testament priest represented the people before God. And this is made clear uh, from from the breastplate of the high priest. On that breastplate were 12 stones representing each of the tribes of the people of Israel. And as the people's representative, the priest prayed for the people also. That work was extremely important alongside the atonement. Uh, We we see that, for instance, in in Moses interceding for the people after the the golden calf in the book of Exodus. Right? That work of intercession. And Christ, too, as our great high priest, makes intercession for us. What a wonderful thing that is. We are stained with sin of ourselves. We are unholy by nature and we all stumble in many ways. But the beautiful thing of Christ's work of high priest is that he represents us before the Father. He represents us with all of his holiness. In all of his purity, Christ intercedes for us. And that is the Savior we need. That's the reason why our prayers can be answered. And it's beautiful, Christ's work of intercession as we see in our text as well. Christ's prayer to the Father. This prayer gives us something of the flavor of Christ's intercession in heaven. That's because Christ continues this work after his ascension too, ever since his ascension for his people. And here we see that the eagerness 
with which Christ intercedes, the love with which he intercedes for us. Right? Jesus Christ was appointed to this task by God the Father, and he did it faithfully, he does it faithfully, but he, does, he doesn't do it grudgingly. No, he does it in love. He, he does it with eagerness. Even with all of our weaknesses, even with all of our temptations and struggles, Christ is our loving high priest. He loves his own, and so he lovingly prays for us. And to see something of this, Think of the the disciples whom Christ prays for at the beginning of this prayer. Uh, At the beginning of this prayer, first we see Christ talking to his Father, then he's praying mainly on behalf of his disciples, and then for the rest of believers. So at the beginning of this prayer, Christ is praying mainly for his disciples. And these men were obviously not perfect. Right, as we read through the Gospels up to this point, Peter's flaws are, are definitely apparent, and they will be exposed even more when he denies the Lord three times. But the others are not exempt either. Thomas would outright disbelieve the resurrection, and at one point they all argued about which of them was the greatest. And yet Christ here lovingly intercedes for these weak and flawed men. And we can take comfort that Christ likewise lovingly prays for us still today. In this, we can see the truth of Hebrews 5, verse 2. Christ can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And if we have any doubt whether or not Christ Jesus is our personal high priest, then listen to the first words of our text. I do not ask for these only his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. This is for our comfort too. Christ prays for all those who believe in him through that gospel message. So, if you believe that message of Christ based on the apostles' teaching, you can be sure that Christ is your high priest. And he's praying for you, that he intercedes for you. So in light of Christ's prayer in John 17, let us be all the more encouraged by the words of Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace through our high priest Jesus, the Son of God, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need brings us to our second point. Now, seeing how Christ lovingly prays for his people as our high priest, let's now turn to the the content of his prayer here in our text. In our text, he prays for all believers. And it's good to pay attention to this. These These are some of the last words of Christ's teaching ministry before the cross. It's his prayer for his church for that time when he is gone. And so in this last prayer, we should take note, what does Christ want for his church? What's on his mind here as the cross approaches? 
Now, of course, I'm sure many things Christ wants for his church are not listed here, right? What Christ wants from his church is found throughout Scripture. However, it's still good to ask, what is emphasized here? What's on his mind? What's on his heart? And surely one thing stands out right away. As we look at his words, we see an emphasis on unity. Christ is not only the high priest of his church, he's also the head of the church, and we are his body. And Christ desires that there be unity in his body as much as possible. You see, when, when God created the world, there was a blessed unity built into humanity, men and women. As people made in the image of God, all our thoughts, desires, and intentions from, from all people were to glorify God together. And so there would have been, at creation, perfect peace between Adam and Eve. But that unity was shattered with the fall into sin. Suddenly tension arose between Adam and Eve. Shame and envy and anger and hatred began to arise in the human heart. And the words of Titus 3 verse 3 describe this condition well when it says, We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's the fallen condition of the human race. But the disunity that's now in the human race because of sin is being restored in the church so that there's unity. In fact, this is one of the reasons why Christ died and rose again. Christ came to die on the cross not only to pay for our sins as individual people, he also died on the cross so that we might be unified together as one people. You see, Christ has united us together in his death and resurrection so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be one. And so he begins this section with these words, I do not ask for these only, my disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And here we see the nature of the church. Christ's church is created through the gospel message that was proclaimed by the apostles. And it's this that provides the basis for the unity of the church. Believers are one because they believe that same gospel message. They share the same Savior and the same faith. This is why Ephesians 4 verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so we can say that there is, an, an, there is always an objective unity that exists in the church. And what does that mean? That is, there is a unity between believers that does not depend on our feelings toward one another. 
It's a unity that's based on what Christ has done for all believers. It's a unity based on the presence of the Holy Spirit within all believers. And it's a unity that transcends nations, cultures, and languages. And this is the unity we must keep returning to, keep focusing on. And that's because it's that unity in Christ that will lead to our experience of unity with each other. Through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we can enjoy a subjective unity more and more. That means we can enjoy ever-increasing feelings of unity with all believers. You see, it's that aspect of our unity that can be brittle at times, right? There's always things that can arise that can threaten that, that unity that we enjoy and experience. That's because believers have not yet been made perfect. Our sinful nature can get a hold of us. It can create all kinds of disunity, and that can be uh, accelerated when we go through trials and face intense Stress, stressful times, patience can run thin, strong words can easily come out. It doesn't take long before the unity we enjoy is shattered. That's why the Holy Spirit, through Paul, urges us in Ephesians 4 verse 3, be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is why our Lord prays what He does in our text. Father, I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And again in verse 22, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become one perfectly one. Why does, why does Christ focus on unity so much in this prayer? Well, perhaps because he, he knows how prone we are to quarrel and fight. You know, you might think of uh, parents with their children. For what, perhaps one evening, a mom and a dad, they go out and they, they hire a babysitter to take care of the kids and if they know that their children are prone to quarrel with each other, they might say, make sure that while we are gone, you do not fight with each other. That may be one reason why Christ emphasizes it here. But Christ surely emphasizes this also because of the beauty of our unity. For the sermon we sang from Psalm 133. There we saying, how good it is when brothers are united with one another's company delighted and live in pleasant harmony. Right? It's that harmony that can be easily shattered. And why is this so beautiful? Well, again, it contrasts with the disunity that's out in the world because of sin. But another fundamental reason is, is that it reflects the unity between Jesus Christ and the Father. What does Christ pray here? 
may they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And the glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. You look at that relationship between Christ and the Father, it's also display, on display here in our text. Right? It's a beautiful relationship of love and, and peace and perfect harmony between God the Father and His Son. It's a unity that brings immense joy. So Christ eagerly prays that we might share in that unity in the present so that we might also experience some of that joy that comes from the unity between God the Father and His Son. And it's the Holy Spirit who makes it more and more possible, more and more a reality in the church. He also maintains that unity as He works in us to heed His calling in Ephesians 4, be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that includes using peaceful words about each other and and towards each other. It includes acting and speaking in love towards each other, even when we may need to rebuke our brother and sister in Christ. And one of the beautiful fruits of thee is that it acts as a a powerful testimony to the world. Remember, there's an inherent disunity in the world. Just go on Twitter and you'll see it. As the unity of the church shines into this chaotic world more and more, it will testify to the world about the truth of the Christian faith. That's not just any other religion. It really comes from God. As Christ prays here, prays here, may believers become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. Right? What an incredible statement. Also that, so that the world may know that you sent me and, and you loved them as you loved me. And this testimony shines forth not only as we maintain and grow unity in this local congregation, but also as we maintain the unity in our, in our federation of churches, strive for that, and strive for unity with other faithful churches. You know, I know of one situation in Canada where there is a Canadian Reformed Church on one side of the road on a busy street and a United Reformed Church on the other side of, the, of that same street. There might be plenty of beautiful expressions of unity between them. It's still important to not be content with the situation as it is, but to strive for unity where it's possible. For what witness does that situation send to the world? It sends a message that there's disunity in the church just as there is in the world. Now, let's be clear, that's not to suggest that we need to have unity at all costs. Of course not. Or that we should just ignore the doctrinal differences between churches or between us and Christians of other federations. We cannot just sacrifice the truth and pretend there is unity when there are important differences. 
What does Jesus pray right before our text? Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So the truth of God's word always remains our standard. That being said, seeing Jesus' prayer, we ought always to strive for unity as much as we can. Brings us to our last point. Now Christ course, not only prays for our present unity in this prayer, he also has his eye on our future good. He prays in verse 24, Father, I desire that these believers also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And here, here we see the love of our Lord Jesus so clearly on display. Christ would soon be taken to heaven. But his believers remain on the earth for the time being, of course, Christ says, I will not leave you as orphans. He would send the Holy Spirit to be with his church, and so he would be with us forever. But yet, there is still that physical distance between Jesus Christ and us. And he wants to reassure us here with these words that he will never forget his people when he's in heaven, and that he loves them. He loves us, and He wants us to be with Him. The physical distance that separates us from Him is necessary for a time. But Christ always has His eyes also on the future where we can be with Him forever. Now, as I mentioned in the first point, this prayer is rightly called Christ's high priestly prayer. It certainly has that character. But we should also remember that Scripture itself does not give it this title. And so we can also view this prayer in other ways. Perhaps we should also call this prayer Christ Jesus' loving prayer for his bride for the church. We read from John 14 earlier, and there Jesus, he told his disciples, in my father's room, or, or in my father's house, are many rooms. I am going there to prepare a place for you. You know, in Israel, it was this common practice for young men to build onto their father's house before marriage so that Wedding, when the wedding day came, the bride and the groom could move into that newly built space. And surely Christ is eagerly preparing a place in his Father's house for his bride, his church. And in this prayer, Christ is like a groom lovingly praying for his, his bride. He wants more than anything to be reunited with her. Long-distance relationships can be hard. When the many miles separate loved ones, you just want to be together. Christ knows that, and 
And he feels that as well. He wants to be with us also. This also helps to put the trials and tragedies of this life into perspective. When you go through certain things like sickness and pain, you can feel almost like the life is being sucked out of you. And yes, at those times, it can be a good time to take stock of our lives to see, are we walking on the right path or do we need correction? We should also remember we are on our way to glory. And yes, the path to glory is filled with trials. And Christ, our, our groom, our, the bridegroom, our shepherd, sometimes leads us through those difficult things, but he is leading us to himself. He has his eye on leading us to himself to enjoy his glory forever. Maybe it doesn't seem to make any sense when you're going through times of pain and trial. Let's remember that our Lord, he can see the big picture even when we cannot. We get a sampling of this in John 13. Christ told his disciples that Some troubling things were about to happen. One of the disciples would betray him. He was going away, and where he was going, they could not come. And he even said Peter would outright deny him three times. But in those words, we can see that Christ sees the big picture. He knows the future. And yes, there were troubling things coming for the disciples, But Christ reassured them in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And again in John 16, I have said these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Christ knows we will face trouble in this world. But he also knows where he is leading us, so do not lose heart. Christ desires, he wills that we would be with him in glory. What is this glory? It's a number of things. It's the glory of his human nature that perfectly and beautifully reflects the glory of God, the image of God. As 1 Corinthians 11 says, man is the image and glory of God, and and Christ has that glory perfectly, as he's perfectly in the image of God. It can also be the glory given to Christ for completing his redemptive work on the cross. What does Scripture constantly say? God exalts the humble, glorifies them. Christ Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on a cross for our salvation. And God, therefore, glorified his Son because of his obedience. And we will get to enjoy that glory and even share in it. Not only that, Christ, of course, is also true God. And so within his very person is the glory of God himself. We will see and enjoy the glory of God in the face of Christ for all eternity. And that can be something that's 
almost overwhelming to think about. Who is sufficient for these things? God's majesty is is truly awesome, awe-inspiring. His glory is immense. In fact, the Hebrew word for glory is very much related to the word heavy. God's glory, it's God is conveying it as a, as a heavy thing, a weighty thing. In the book of Exodus, Moses could not even enter the tabernacle when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And God stated many times that no one can see him and live. And so to think about being in the presence of our triune God, looking upon the glory of God in the face of Christ can almost be overwhelming. Remember also the words of 2 Corinthians 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us His Spirit as a guarantee of what is coming. We are not yet made perfect, but God is preparing us for that time when we, we can stand in His presence and gaze upon His glory in Jesus Christ. And so as 2 Corinthians 5 says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The same desire that Christ has for his people, the Holy Spirit now works in our hearts so that we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is the desire of Christ. And he so desires this that he went all the way to the cross to make sure that it will happen. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self may be wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Amen.